Hey, uh, in this series, if you weren't here last week, we're talking about how the uh, story of Christmas uh, is actually birthed out of the stories of history. And that's good news for Jesus followers and folks who believe the Christmas story because the Christmas story isn't once upon a time in a land far, far away. It's not fable, it's not myth, it's not legend. It's actually anchored to and rooted in history. And when we think about the Christmas story, it's important for us to understand that it's just not a story that plays out out there on the plains of Bethlehem, but this is a story that played out in throne rooms among some of the most notorious and influential and known kingdoms and empires in world history. And so last week we started looking at some of these kings who are associated with or connected to the Christmas story. And last week we talked about King Zedekiah. And King Zedekiah was the last Jewish king. He was the last descendant of David to sit upon the Jewish throne. And we talked about how Nebuchadnezzar, who led the great Babylonian empire, they came in in 586 BC. Again, this is rooted in history. 586 BC, and they basically destroyed Jerusalem. And last week, if you, if you were here, you remember that Zedekiah, he was captured as a prisoner of war by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and they poked his eyes out. Merry Christmas, right? And uh, so they poked his eyes out, they killed his sons in front of him, and they took him off as a prisoner of war to Babylon. And that was the last and final Jewish king. In the aftermath of Nebuchadnezzar's invasion of Jerusalem, the city was destroyed, the walls around the city was destroyed, and the temple was destroyed. Thousands were left dead in the city streets. Thousands more were taken off as prisoners of war, captives back to Babylon. And thousands were left behind in the smoky ruins of Jerusalem, the city of God. Now think about what it would have been like to be Jewish at that moment. It seemed as though all hope was lost. It seemed as though the future had no bright spot. In that moment, the promise that they had been told about, you know, Abraham, one day, one of your descendants is going to bless the entire world. That seemed fantasy. Uh, the promise that they'd been told about that David supposedly received from God, that one day one of his sons would sit upon a throne uh, that would not be toppled and rule over a kingdom that would never end. That all just seemed like fantasy. And here they are in the smoky ruins of a destroyed city. And while they are recouping from their loss and from the devastation of thousands being taken away, and here they are with their homes destroyed. God sends a prophet. He sends a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. Now, we talked a little bit about Jeremiah last week, but Jeremiah, he shows up in the streets of Jerusalem with the smoke still rising off of everything that Nebuchadnezzar's army destroyed. And Jeremiah looks at the people and he points them towards the future. And he says, the future is not hopeless. It is not as bleak as what you think. Matter of fact, the future is bright. And he began to teach them and tell them about a day in the future when God would send a future king. And this king would do what was right and he would rule with justice. This would be a king that it was hard for them to imagine. This king would be greater than David and this king would be greater than Solomon. And in some way, this future king that would be born would bring peace to the entire world. And so he began to point them towards the future to say there is hope. The best is yet to come. But not only did he predict the birth of a future king, but he also predicted that the thousands who had been taken away as prisoners of war would at the appointed time return to the land of their forefathers, that they would come back to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And just in case you're wondering if it came true, it absolutely came true. And if you love history, and I hope that you do, but even if you don't, you should care about it. In 538 BC, about 70 years later, in 538 BC, Nebuchadnezzar's empire of Babylon was dethroned. 
And now the new great world empire was an empire called the Medo-Persian Empire. Perhaps you studied it in school. And the Medo-Persian Empire replaced Babylon as the next great world empire led by King Cyrus the Great. And King Cyrus, when he took over, he allowed all the Jewish people that had been taken as prisoners of war by Nebuchadnezzar to return back home. And that was a big deal because when they returned back home, they began to rebuild the city. They would rebuild the temple and a guy by the, Nehemiah, by the name of Nehemiah would lead a project to rebuild the walls around the city. Now, 200 years into the future, after the Medo-Persian Empire is the empire of the world, the Medo-Persian Empire is replaced by another empire, the Empire of the Greeks. And the Empire of the Greeks is led by a young strapping general, you've heard of him before, known as Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, he rode with his 40,000 soldiers and he conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. And now he is the dominant world empire. Now, Alexander the Great, he will die young, and when he dies, his empire is going to be split up among his generals. And I know what you're thinking. Why do I even care about this? Because this is going to bring us to where we are today, because the Christmas story is a story that is birthed right out of the stories of history. When Alexander dies, his kingdom is split up among his generals. And Alexander's grand vision all along was to take Greek culture, Greek thought, Greek philosophy, Greek architecture, and to spread it to all the conquered lands. And that's exactly what he did. And that's exactly what his successors did after him. So for around the next 150 years, 156 years to be exact, for the next 156 years, Israel, the land of Judah, Judea, Israel would be ruled by one king after another king, after another king, after another king, after another king. And at the end of that string of kings, there is a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, I know that you probably don't know anything about him, but the thing you need to know about him was he was a Syrian king. He was a Seleucid king. He hated the Jewish people. He wanted to exterminate their way of thought. He wanted to exterminate their faith. And so what did he do? He committed the ultimate act of blasphemy to demoralize the Jewish people. He hung up a picture or an image of Zeus in the Jewish temple, and then he offered a pig, which was considered highly unclean to the Jewish people. He offered a pig as a sacrifice to, Jews, uh, to, to Zeus on the Jewish temple. And that had unintended consequence. Because on that day, 13 or so thousand priests committed suicide because of that act of blasphemy. But at the same time, it inspired a revolt in the Jewish people. It's known in history as the Maccabean Revolt. And during the Maccabean Revolt, uh, the Jewish people, for a period of time, for the next hundred years, they regain their independence. And there is a list of kings out of one Jewish family, the Hasmoneans, that take over. And it's known as the Hasmonean Dynasty. They're not descendants of David. They're their own clan. They're within the Jewish race. But they rule the land of Israel for around the next 100 years. And this brings us to where we pick up today with the king that we're going to talk about. In 63 BC, and this is about 50 plus years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem, around 63 BC, Pompey the Great, he's a Roman general and a Roman politician within the Roman Republic. Pompey, he storms into Jerusalem with his army and he claims Jerusalem in Judea in the name of Rome. And so Rome conquers Judea and Rome conquers Jerusalem. Now, a little bit about Pompey, other than the fact that he was a general and other than the fact that he was a very, very good Roman politician. He was married to a girl by the name of Julia. 
And again, you're thinking, why do I care? Trust me, stay with me for just a moment. He was married to a young woman named Julia. Her father, you've heard of. Her father was another politician within the Roman Republic and a general within the Roman Republic, a guy by the name of Julius Caesar. And so then we're introduced into history, the story of Pompey and Julius Caesar. Pompey married Julius Caesar's daughter. When Julia... His wife and Julius Caesar's daughter died. Pompey and Julius Caesar got into a civil war over control of the Roman Senate and the Roman Republic. In the end, Julius Caesar defeats Pompey. And Julius Caesar becomes perhaps the most powerful leader of the Roman Republic. Now, along the way, Julius Caesar, he makes enemies and he makes friends. And one of the friends that he made was a guy by the name of Antipater. Antipater now enters the story with Julius Caesar. Antipater had actually saved Julius Caesar's life in Alexandria, Egypt. He got cornered by an army, but Antipater led a small little band of Jewish soldiers and saved Julius Caesar's life. As a gesture of appreciation and gratitude, Julius Caesar makes Antipater the chief governor of Judea, the chief governor of Israel, the chief governor of Judea. And with that position came the right to collect taxes, which made it a very influential, powerful, and wealthy position to hold. Antipater, he was a good father in the sense that he wanted his son to share within his power and within his privilege. So Antipater, he had the resources, he also had the connections that he was able to place one of his sons as the chief governor of Galilee. The chief governor of Galilee. And about three years after Antipater makes one of his sons the chief governor of Galilee, something happens in Rome. And in 44 BC, you studied this in school, in 44 BC, Julius Caesar was assassinated, right? Remember Cassius and Brutus, a to Brute, you know, you remember that. And so Julius Caesar, he was assassinated. And when he was assassinated, a couple of years after he was assassinated, the Roman Senate, they needed strong leadership in Judea. So they made Antipater's son that he had made chief governor, governor of Galilee king. They made Antipater's son king. And this is where we're introduced into history to King Herod the Great. See, I told you Christmas was part of this. King Herod the Great was named king by the Roman Senate. Now, when Julius Caesar, when he was assassinated, his adopted son, Octavian, and Mark Antony, another you know, military leader in the Roman Republic, they joined forces to basically avenge the death of Julius Caesar. Again, Octavian was Julius Caesar's adopted son. Mark Antony was his good friend and a great general. When that happened, they did exactly that. But in time, Octavian and Mark Antony turned on each other in a civil war for who would control the Roman Empire. So when that happened, King Herod the Great decided that he was going to put all of his support behind Mark Antony and his wife, his woman, Cleopatra, right? You remember her. And so he decided that he was going to give his money, his resources, some of his troops to Mark Antony and his bid to unseat Octavian. But in the end, Octavian would win out over Mark Antony. Now, you know Octavian in history as Caesar Augustus. Again, I told you, history and Christmas, it's, it's, it's hand in hand with each other. So Octavian beat Mark Antony, and Herod was faced with a conundrum. He's, he's back the wrong guy. And now the other guy's in charge. And in those days, when you back the wrong guy and your guy loses and another guy wins, you are a dead man. But Herod is so politically astute. 
He's such the diplomat, and he's a guy who can always find an angle. He does a bear, you know, just this daring, bold gesture. He gets on a boat and goes to the island of Rhodes. And there he gets an audience with Octavian, Caesar Augustus, who is now the first emperor of the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire in the history of the world. And he goes to Octavian and he essentially says, you know that I pledged my loyalty and allegiance to Mark Antony, and I was loyal to the end. I stick by my man. So here I am today, I am pledging my allegiance to you for the rest of my life, and you know that you can count on me. And Octavian was so struck by this daring gesture that not only did he let King Herod keep his crown, but he also expanded his territory. And he gave him more lands and more kingdoms to call his own. Now, King Herod was a complex man. I mean, he was a complex guy. He was a political genius. He was intelligent. He was not a Jew. He was half Jew. So he was an outsider. So in order to get the approval of the people, he married into the Hasmonean family that had ruled for about 100 years to give him some cover with the people. He was an architect. He was a builder. Matter of fact, some of the most magnificent things in Israel today was built because of Herod. He, he built a seaport in Caesarea. He, he, he built amphitheaters. He built fortresses at Masada. And he even rebuilt the Jewish temple. And so this guy, is, he's genius. He's a politically astute guy. But at the same time, he's erratic. He's paranoid. He's jealous. He's heartless. He's bloodthirsty. And maybe even a bit psychotic. And here's what you need to know about Herod. Herod was a man who would do anything to cling to his throne. He was a guy who would do anything to cling to his power, to cling to his kingdom, to preserve his life, his kingdom, his wealth. He was a guy who would do anything to cling to his throne. Matter of fact, so that you know a little bit about this guy so that the Christmas story will make more sense to you. When he came to power, Herod killed 45 of the 70 members of the Sanhedrin high court of the Jewish people because he thought they had more power than he did. So he killed 45 of them so that he could put yes men in their place. Over the course of his rule, he will kill his wife. He will kill his mother-in-law. He will kill his brother-in-law, Aristobulus, who is the high priest of the Jewish people. He will even kill three of his sons, and he will kill two-thirds of the Jewish rabbis. This guy will eliminate any threat that he perceives to his kingdom. He will do whatever it takes to cling to his throne. And then when we are finally introduced to Herod in the New Testament Christmas narratives, he's about 70 years old. And historians tell us that his body is racked with pain. And many, Old Test you know, many scholars of history and of, and of antiquity, they believe that Herod, uh, that he had some type of kidney disease. And his body would swell. He had multiple infections with gangrene. He was just in horrible, horrible pain. And so when we're first introduced to him, he's 70 years old, he's very sick, he's as paranoid as ever, and he is as committed to ever as preser to preserving his kingdom and preserving his throne. And it's at 70 years old when he's sick, he's paranoid, and he's dying that he receives some of the most troubling news he has ever heard in his entire life. There is a new king in the land, and this new king is in diapers. And this is where Matthew introduces us to the story. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod. So with all this bloodshed, all this instability, 
When King Herod and his heavy hand of authority, in those days, that's when Jesus was born. And if you're interested, Jesus was born somewhere between 6 BC and 4 BC. Most likely right in the middle, 5 BC. Jesus wasn't born at zero. He was born around 5 BC because Herod's gonna, he's gonna die in 4 BC and Jesus was born before Herod dies. It says, so during the time of King Herod, Magi, right? We've heard of them before. From the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Now, this is so important. Don't miss this. When these guys show up, they ask the wrong question in the wrong way. They ask the question, where is the one who was born king? Now, to be born king, you have to have a legitimate claim to the throne. You had to have a legitimate claim to the throne of David. And here is someone who has been born five miles away from Herod, who the wise men, the Magi say, he is the legitimate heir of King David. He is the heir to the Jewish throne. Now, Herod was not a legitimate heir to the Jewish throne. His father had got him a position. Then he wined and dined and willed and dealed with the Roman Senate, and he was able to be appointed king. He talked himself out of a mess with Octavian. He was not the legitimate heir to the Jewish throne. So when he heard this, th this rocked his world. And the reason it rocked his world because of these magi. Now, I'm about to totally unsettle some of you. Because everything you've heard about these magi, these wise men, has been an absolute, complete lie. Most likely, there was not three of them. And they were not kings, and they were not from the Orient. So all these years you've been singing, we three kings of Orient are. It's been a lie. They lied to you. We don't know if there were three or not. And we know they weren't kings, and, and most likely they were not from the Orient. Matter of fact, at home, if you have wise men as part of your nativity, if you're really biblical, you would take them out and like, like take them down the street somewhere. Because they take about a year to get there. They're, they're not part of what happened when Jesus was born. So Jesus has already been born for a while when these magi show up. Now, these magi, they first show up in history around seven BC, and they are priests and they are politicians from Persia. They're, they're, a Greek, you know, they're a group of priestly politicians. They are Parthians. Now, this is why this is important to understand how Herod responds to these people. And you need to know who these people are. They were part of a hereditary priesthood. They were part of a tribe that in order to be a priest within this tribe, you had to be born within this tribe. You were not allowed to be brought in. And what's interesting, historians tell us that these magi, they had a sacrificial system, much like the Jewish people had in the Old Testament. Nobody really knows why. Now, historians outside the Bible tell us that they were a powerful group of advisors. So much so that historians say that you could not become king. You could not become king in Babylon or Persia without mastering the teachings of the Magi and without being approved by these Magi. So here, here's, the, here's the thing. They are king makers. And when they stroll into Jerusalem, everybody, including Herod, knows who these guys are. They are king makers. You say, well, how in the world do they even show up in the story to begin with? Because hundreds of years earlier, when, you know, when Nebuchadnezzar came to town, destroyed the city, he took people back to Babylon. Among that group that he took back was a young prophet by the name of Daniel. When Daniel got to Babylon, he was promoted and promoted and promoted and promoted by Nebuchadnezzar to where we are told in the book of Daniel that he became the dean of the college of the Magi. So undoubtedly, Daniel, while he was in Babylon, told this group of Magi, that God had promised that one day a king would come, 
a world ruler that would change the world. So this, this, is, this is so fascinating. And I hope, I hope you care about this. And even if you don't care, fake it and fake it till you make it. And I'm just going to pretend that you really want to hear this because you need to hear this, okay? At that particular time in the world, and let's step outside the Bible for a moment. At that particular time in the world, there was this growing anticipation in the known world that a world ruler would arrive. A king would be born that would change the scope of history. And this was just not a Jewish belief that this, this was believed in different cultures. So much so that Suetonius, uh, he was a Roman historian. This is what Suetonius had to say. He said there had spread all over the East an old and established belief. It had been around a while and it was well embedded. That it was fated at that time from men coming from Judea to rule the world. And not only Suetonius, but Tacitus, a Roman. Here's what he said. He says, there was a firm persuasion that at this very time of history, the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire universal empire. Josephus, he was a Jewish historian. He said this, he said, the Jews had the belief that about that time, one from their own country should become governor of the habitable earth. So at this particular time in world history, there is this growing expectation that sooner rather than later, an emperor would be born, a king would be born, a world leader would be born that would change history. So when the Magi came to town, no wonder, Matthew says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. I bet he was. He was disturbed. It means that he was agitated, but yet he was terrified all at the same time. And all of Jerusalem with him because when Herod was upset, there was no predicting what Herod might do. So everyone was scared. Everyone was fearful. And you need to understand that when these magi showed up, these weren't three guys riding three camels. Most likely, these guys traveled with an entourage of at least a thousand people. And they came into town with their tricked out camels and they came with a small army and cooks and servants and they rolled in with full priestly regalia and everyone knew these were the kingmakers from the east. And they started going through the streets of Jerusalem saying, where is the newborn king of the Jews? Where is the newborn king of the Jews? And people were talking and people were unsettled. And they finally got an audience with Herod. And he's a bit intimidated by their presence and by their reputation. And so he's so disturbed at what he hears. He goes into action. And it says, when he, Herod, had called together all the people's chief, chief priests and the teachers of the Jewish law, he asked them, because he'd been raised Jewish, he had this expectation that this perhaps was to happen. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And they spoke up immediately. They said, in Bethlehem, in Bethlehem, five miles from here, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet had written. And they quote a 500-year-old text from what we call the Jewish scriptures called Micah. And here's what Micah said 500 years before this moment. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And this just wasn't a ruler, but this was a ruler over all rulers. This just wasn't a king, but this was a king above all kings. And this was a shepherd. This is what those Old Testament kings were supposed to be. They were supposed to be shepherds for the people, directing them and leading them to God. And so he says, the prophet, he will be born in Bethlehem, this king, the same king that Jeremiah said would come and do what is right and do what is just. And so Herod, 
paranoid, insecure, terrified, agitated. He has been given the right information. He's been given truthful information. But here is where we have to ask a question. How will Herod respond? How will he respond to the truth that he has been given? And in this moment, both he and the Magi are given the same truthful information. And the narrative for the rest of the story begins to be about how will they respond. It says, then Herod, he called the Magi secretly because he's, he's, he's a wheeler and dealer. He calls them secretly and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. And he said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you come to him, report to me so that I may go and worship him also. Now, history tells us that Herod, when he killed his wife Miriam, that he threw this big funeral with pomp and circumstance and he cried like a baby throughout the whole thing. He knew how to put on a show. He knew how to play the part. He says, so tell me so I can go worship. And he says, and after they had heard the king, Herod, they went on their way and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until they stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. And they opened up their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And this is how the Magi responded. They responded to the truth that they were given. And when they showed up and they saw the Christ child, they realized and recognized who they were in the presence of and they responded accordingly. And that's worship. Most of us church people, we think that worship is just singing, but it's so much bigger than that. It's so much more than that. Don't cheapen the idea of worship to just music. It's so much bigger than that. Worship is when you recognize and realize that you're in the presence of God and you respond accordingly. And that's what they did. They gave their best gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What was in their hand was an accurate reflection of what was in their heart. They bowed their knee. And when they bowed their knee, they were abdicating rights to their own lives. They were abdicating the right to rule their own kingdoms. They were abdicating the right to live their own life the way that they wanted to live their life. They surrendered and they submitted to a baby because of who they believed this baby was. They bowed their knee and they swore their allegiance. They pledged their loyalty to this newborn king. It says, when they, the wise men, the magi had gone, had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up. He said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt because there are people plotting against this baby. And then the wise men, the magi, they were warned by God not to go back to Herod, to go back home a different path. And it says that when Herod realized that he had been outwitted, because that didn't happen very often, when he had been outwitted by the magi, he was furious. And then he does something that's hard for any of us to imagine until we know the Herod of history. Until we know that he killed 45 of 70 of the high Supreme Court justices. Until we know that he killed his wife and his brother-in-law and his mother-in-law and three of his sons. He does something and in his attempt to cling to his own kingdom, in his attempt to rule his own life, he does the unthinkable. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he'd learned 
from the Magi. And here's Herod, clinging to power, holding to the right of his own kingdom. And it drove him to an unholy act, an unholy decision. In the end, an unhealthy one for his own agenda and his own desires. For Herod, no one was going to stand in the way of his kingdom. No one was going to stand in his way. Not even a baby. Not even one who supposedly was born at the prediction of the prophets, the Messiah, the king who would change the world. No one was going to get in Herod's way of building his own kingdom. No one. And to Herod, a baby was the greatest threat to his kingdom. It says, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. With his body racked with pain, days before he dies, Herod knows he's about to die. He actually tried to commit suicide, but he was interrupted by one of his aides. But knowing that he was about to die, and knowing the atrocities that he had carried out, and knowing how committed he was at his own, for his own kingdom at the expense of anybody, Herod gave one last order. And in his order, he told them to gather all the most influential, most loved people in the kingdom, in all of Jerusalem, and arrest them, and throw them into prison. And on the day that I die, Herod would say, I want you to kill them, because I want to make sure that there are people crying on the streets of Jerusalem when I die. And that is the story of King Herod. King Herod the great, a man who clung to his throne and held on to his kingdom no matter the cost. And in the end, in Herod's mind, Jesus was the greatest threat to his kingdom. Jesus was the greatest threat to Herod's kingdom, a baby. But for those of us who follow Jesus, we know that that baby grew into a man. And Jesus would teach his followers and would teach the world what worship was all about. He would say, if you want to worship, and if you want to worship correctly and properly with purity, he says, you need to know something. Worshiping is when you love God most. It's not hard to love God, but it is hard to love God most. So when you love God most, that's worshiping. And then he would say, when you love God most, you'll seek God's kingdom first. And Jesus would say, that's worship. And when you love God most and you seek God's kingdom first, you will love one another best. You will pray for one another. You will serve one another. You'll put one another in front of each other. You will forgive each other. Be patient with each other. Because in the kingdom of God, and under the rule of our Savior King, love is the law of the kingdom. 
And when you love God most and you seek my kingdom first and you love each other best, that's what it means to worship me. That's what Jesus taught. And then Jesus one day, he preached a sermon. And when I read these words, I can't help but think of Herod, a man who tried to hold on to his own kingdom. A man who tried to build his own kingdom at the expense of anyone and everything. Jesus was teaching one day and Jesus said, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And isn't that what Herod tried to do? He tried every way to preserve his own life, to preserve his power, to preserve his position, to cling to his throne and to cling to his kingdom. But Jesus said, if that's the way you choose to live, if you choose to live for your kingdom rather than God's kingdom, in the end, you will lose it. If that's what your life is about, you will in the end lose your life. But whoever loses their life for me, Jesus says, will find it. And then Jesus asked a question. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? Everything they ever wanted. What good would it be for you to get to do everything you wanted to do with who you wanted to do it with as often as you wanted to do it, live your life any way that you saw fit? What if... What good in the end will it be for someone to gain the whole world to have that life, but Jesus said, yet forfeit their soul? The real them, the true them, the eternal them. Jesus said, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus said, we all are inclined to be like Herod. Every single one of us, when left to ourselves, we will cling to our own throne. Every single one of us wants to sit on the throne of our own life. We want to govern our own life, do what we want to do, live how we want to live, and we don't want to answer to anyone. And Jesus said there's a little bit of that in all of us. But if you try to preserve your life, you're going to lose it. But if you abdicate, if you step aside and you let your Savior have his proper place, that's when you'll find life. When you give him the rule of your life, that's when you'll find life. And Jesus, he takes us to the edge of eternity. And he says, imagine if you got to live the life that you wanted to live. You got to do everything you ever wanted to do, no matter if it was God's way or not. But in that moment, at the edge of time, at the beginning of eternity, you realized that you had gained the world, but you had lost your soul. Jesus said, in that moment, what would you give for your soul and of course the answer for you for me for everyone is in that moment you would do anything and you would give everything for your soul and Jesus said if that's what you would do then that's what you need to do now Jesus is talking about who or what we choose to worship what we decide to give our allegiance to Will it be thy kingdom or my kingdom? Will it be my will or thy will? And Jesus said, if you live for your will and your kingdom, in the end, you will lose it all. Just like Herod. Because here's the thing. It's an inconvenient truth, but it's true. You already know it and I already know it. The greatest threat to my kingdom is Jesus. 
I haven't been able to escape this statement in the past few days. I've whispered it to myself in the morning. I've whispered it to myself walking down the halls at home, here in the halls of the church. The greatest threat to my kingdom, to living life the way that I want, to doing ultimately what I desire to do sometimes, the greatest threat to that life is Jesus. And the greatest threat to your life and to your kingdom is Jesus. And so the question of today is, who are you going to let rule your life? Is it going to be my kingdom or thy kingdom? Is it going to be my will or thy will? Because if you try to hold on to your throne, and if you try to rule your own life, in the end, Jesus said, you'll lose it. You'll lose everything just like Herod. Because if you got on a plane today and you landed in Jerusalem, the kingdom of Herod is done. It's over. It's gone. It is a story in history. And the magnificent structures he built are ruins that have withered into the sands of Palestine. Because in the end, he held on and he built his own kingdom. He lost it all. So the question is, what will I worship? What will I give my allegiance to? Who will I give permission to rule my life, to sit on the throne of my heart? Because in the end, the worth of my life worth of your life will be determined by what or who I choose to worship. Will I be like the Magi who bow my knee and surrender based on who I realize and recognize Jesus to be? Or will I be a Herod who resists and rejects and rebels and holds on so I can have my own kingdom? Worship. Who will you worship? Worship is responding to God, who he is in relationship to who you are. Worship means that you know what is right and you do what is right, but you do it for the right reason. That's worship. Worship for some of you is obeying what you know God is telling you to do. That's worship. For some of you, surrendering your knee, swearing your allegiance. Worship means forgiving that person. It means letting go of that resentment. It means turning loose of that guilt and that shame. That's what worship means to you. For some of you, it's letting go of the grudge. It's getting rid of the anger. That's worship. For some of you, it means becoming a follower of Jesus. For some of you, it means taking your hands off a piece of your life that you refuse to give God control of. And in the end, Worship is a bended knee with open hands, realizing that Jesus is king, even king of my life. My kingdom is too small to live for. My kingdom is not forever, but his is. And worship is open hands saying, here I am, all that I have, all that I am. Is yours. You are my king, and I pledge my allegiance to you alone, Jesus.